When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to the Tudor's Dynasty podcast with Rebecca Larson. Welcome to episode 126. I'm your host, Rebecca. As a 10th century ruler, she is frequently referred to as a warrior queen. This daughter of Alfred the Great appears to have been respected by the people of her time. But was she murdered? On today's episode, historian Annie Whitehead fills in the details of this fascinating woman named Athelfled. Annie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Rebecca. Thanks so much for inviting me. Every once in a while, I want to do something that's a little out of our comfort zone. And today's topic is definitely one of those because we're going to be stepping back in time to the 9th and 10th century, a time period that really is foreign to a bunch of the listeners today. But as always, it is so important to understanding the world that the Tudors later lived in. So our topic today is Ethelfled. Is that the right way to say her name? Oh, well, um, there's a big discussion about that. I, I think the probably the closest pronunciation would be Athelflad. But uh, but she was later modernized to sort of Ethelfleda and Ethelfled. So anything's fine. I tend to call her Athelflad, but... All right. Well, I'll just say whatever comes out. <laughs> it's one of those, th- you know, maybe one of the first questions I should start with, and hopefully you can answer this for me. Why were their names like that? The A.E. at the beginning. Is there a history behind that at all? Uh, it's just really part of the, the old English language and the old English alphabet. And they had a few sounds, mainly the, the, the diphthongs um, that we kind of have lost over the years. So they had the, the A-E, which was known as the, the ash sound. And you find that in names like Athelflad. And in fact, Alfred the Great, her father, his name would originally have been spelt with that funny A-E diphthong at the beginning. Um, and they had other ones where E and A were combined, but we seem to have lost them over the years. They they sort of uh, stayed around in words like the original medieval, uh, the spelling of the word medieval had a little A-E in the middle of it. Um, but I think it's just part of the, the original Old English Germanic language that we've lost over the years. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I know a lot of the listeners might recognize her name if they watch The Last Kingdom, which is a series on Netflix. And it's actually one that I got into unexpectedly because I just love history so much. And I remember watching it and falling in love with the history of the time and wanting to understand more of what happened with the Anglo-Saxons and the Vikings or the Danes. So let's begin with who exactly were the Anglo-Saxons and why is this time in history so important? Well, the Anglo-Saxons, it's it's a bit of a um, problematic name now, but essentially they were, uh, they came from uh, Europe and they came from um, 
Saxony, obviously. So we've got the Saxons. They were also Angles, um, but they weren't just Angles and Saxons. They were also Jutes and Frisians. Um, somewhere along the way, it, it became convenient to group them together as Anglo-Saxons. Um, we have the writings of uh, the likes of Bede to thank for that. But it, it doesn't give a very um, clear-cut overview. And we also don't really know how uh, the, the nature of, of what, what happened when they got here. For so a long time, it was thought that they just completely um, obliterated the Britons who were living here. Um, and place name evidence would suggest that because most of the English place names now do originate from either the so-called Anglo-Saxons or Viking names. Um, so it was assumed that the, the native population, as it were, was just completely destroyed. But the thinking now is that there was possibly a lot more peaceful integration than we might originally have supposed. But essentially, they, they came across from the likes of Germany and Frisia um, and, and settled here one way or the other. And then there was a lot of uh, absorption of the, the British uh, kingdoms that were already there, either peacefully or not so peacefully. And eventually what happened was that it became several kingdoms. So we had the Kingdom of Northumbria. By, by Alfred the Great and Athelflaed's time, there were four main uh, kingdoms, Northumbria, Mercia, East Anglia and Wessex, um, which wasn't actually called Wessex then. It was just the land of the West Saxons. So obviously we know that people in Wessex were Saxon. The Mercians were probably Angles. Um, it's important because I suppose, in a way, it's it's the birth of England um, rather than Britain. The the people who lived there before were the Britons who, one way or another, pushed back. So they became, you know, living in the uh, the southern part of Scotland, Cornwall, and Wales, of course. So it's in in some ways it's considered the birth of England, although England and Britain, all these names are a little bit contentious. So we we do have to be a bit careful. You mentioned um, her father, Alfred the Great, and I was just surprised to hear you talk about how he wasn't necessarily known as the King of Wessex as we know today. So thank you for bringing that to our attention because I don't know that many people know that. Well, it was the land of the West Saxons. Um, and again, we're not entirely sure where they came from. They they seem to have originated with a tribe called the, uh, it's difficult to pronounce, so I'll spell it. It's G-E-W-I-S-S-E. Uh, maybe Guise would perhaps be the closest to it. But again, nobody's quite sure whether they were already here. It might have been one of the British kingdoms that then got sort of taken over by the Saxons who settled there. But Wessex is the general term. And, and I think certainly by, by the later period, uh, it's perfectly okay to use that word, Wessex. Now, El Ethel, see, I can't even say her name. Ethel Fled. <laughs> Ethel Fled was born about 870. Would that be correct? I think so. 869 or 870. Yeah. What do we know about her childhood? Is there much that's known about it? Really, hardly anything at all. Um, we have actually very little information about her full stop, her, her whole life. The only thing we can say about her childhood is, is we know she was the eldest of Alfred the Great's surviving children. It seems that they had um, a lot of other children, which is a very, very poignant line. Alfred the Great um, had a, his biography written by a monk called Asser, who actually lived and uh, wrote in Wessex during Alfred's lifetime. 
And he talks about the children and he puts them in birth order, but he also talks about a number of children who were either um, lost before or shortly after birth or in childhood. We can't see the number um, because it's not clear to read, but it's it's a touching moment that, you know, there were clearly other children um, who didn't survive and it was it was considered worthy of mention, which I think gives us some kind of idea about how valued children were in that period. But um, as to Athelflaed's younger life, we don't know. Asa tells us that the the younger children were, I think his exact words were, educated at all times at the royal court. And for some people, the inference therefore must be that the older children weren't. And we don't have any evidence where Athelflaed grew up if she hadn't grown up at the court, if she was maybe sent away for a period of time, the only likely place would have been Mercia, which was where her mother came from. And in fact, Alfred's sister was married to the King of Mercia. So there were already connections with the Mercian court. So it's it's possible that Athelflaed spent her early years there, but it's, it's a question of joining up some dots, which I think don't really make a straight line. The, the likelihood is that she grew up with the rest of her brothers and sisters at, at the royal court. Other than that, we really don't know a lot. We know that Alfred valued education, that his children were educated. But beyond that, no, we, we have no detail. And in fact, the, the main source of information for this period, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles, they don't even mention in that that Athelflaed was actually Alfred's daughter. Later on, she's described as Edward's sister, Edward being Alfred's son, he ruled after him. Um, But there's actually very little information about her at all. So we we kind of have to, as I say, fill in the gaps as plausibly as possible. Really, we shouldn't be too surprised that there is a woman in history that we don't know a whole lot about. (laughs) Well, that's true. (laughs) It always seems to be the case, unfortunately. (laughs) Well, I'm curious, Annie, as a child, or let's even say a young woman, what events in history did Ethelflaed experience? Well, if she had been sent to Mercia um, for part of her childhood, it's possible that she would have witnessed um, the great army arriving in uh, Repton in Mercia in 874, which actually caused her uncle, the king, to flee. He eventually went to Rome where he died not long after. So she might have been witness to that. I suspect if she had been there, she would have been sent home quick smart back to to Wessex where it was deemed safer for her. In which case, just four years later, in 878, the Vikings attacked Alfred's um, hall and settlement at Chippenham in Wiltshire. And she might well have been there at the time. And it was after that attack that Alfred uh, famously went and hid out in the marshes in Athelney, which is where, if we believe the story, the famous story about him burning the cakes was probably, um, can be traced to that time. So those would have been two episodes that she might have been witness to. But I you know, that's all I can say she might have. We really don't know, unfortunately. Now, I'm not sure if you can answer this either, but would she have experienced stability in her childhood? Because it really seems like in that time of history that every day just brought a new threat with the Danes invading the continent and whatnot. I think in terms of her personal life, I think probably a lot of stability. From the the small amount of information we have, I think it was quite a a close-knit family and certainly in her later life she worked very closely with her brother but I suspect that her father was not around a great deal I think 
all of the family and the children would have been very aware of this constant threat. The, I mean, you, you, you talked about the Bernard Cornwell books and, and the whole series is called The Last Kingdom. And while it's not strictly true that Wessex was the only kingdom that was still free, it's true that it was the only kingdom that was completely free of the Vikings. And I think there must have been an awareness of that. Stability in terms of, of Alfred just constantly being away fighting. There is so much Viking activity during this period that I constantly have to refer to my notes if I want to remember any of it. Um, I mean, I've just got a list here. I'll just give you a few examples. We have got in 865, the great heathen army comes to East Anglia. In 867, it moves from East Anglia to Northumbria. It moves from Northumbria to Mercia and overwinters there. It goes back to York in 8689. It stays for a year. Then it grows back into East Anglia. So it's constantly on the move. It's not just one army. It's it's lots of different groups of, of different Vikings. Uh, in 871, the Great Heathen Army came to Wessex and there was a battle, um, the Battle of Ashdown. So it's constant warfare, pretty much. And I think she would have been very, very much aware of that, even though she wouldn't have witnessed any of it necessarily so apart from possibly the attack in Chippenham in 878 but this this constant awareness that you know daddy's away fighting the nasty people I think yes there would have been huge fear I think particularly of what was an unseen enemy which is you know always heightens the fear especially for a child and then she married as a teenager she was like 16 or 17 right well we think so Uh, We don't actually know uh, when she was married. The assumption is that she married Ethelred, or I prefer to call him Ethelred. I know I'm going back on everything I said, but I'll I'll call him Ethelred. (laughs) Ethelred of Mercia was actually involved in the, difficult to say, the restoration, the taking back of London um, in 868, I'm saying we're not sure whether it was a taking back or a restoration because it's not entirely clear whether the Vikings were still there at that point. They they might actually have left uh, or been pushed out a few years beforehand. But at that point, it's clear that London was uh, back in English control. And we think that that might be when Alfred decided it would be a good idea for his daughter to marry Ethelred of Mercia. And I think it's likely that it, it would have been Alfred's idea Although I have read recently that um, Athelred might have been wanting to bolster his own claims to ruling Mercia by marrying Athelflaed, who, of course, was half Mercian. So it's, it's interesting. We're not sure entirely the circumstances of the marriage, but it's likely that it, it took place around about that time. So, yes, she would still have been a teenager at that point. And I think Athelred would have been considerably older than her, not least for the fact that he wasn't a king, but he was ruling Mercia. And we don't have any suggestion that Alfred installed him as any kind of puppet, that he was already a leader of Mercia. So it stands to reason that he would have been a tried and tested warrior and some years older than his wife, we think. This this whole time period can be so confusing to so many of us who are used oh, to... Oh, definitely, <laughs> yes. Although I find the Tudors very confusing because it seems to me they were all called Thomas. But <laughs> Yes, they were, Thomas or Henry or... Yes. Yeah. <laughs> this brief interruption is brought to you by, well, me. Do you love Tudor's Dynasty? Consider becoming a patron on Patreon. 
patrons get access to all kinds of amazing things that the everyday listener does not. Find out more by going to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Tudor's Dynasty, and click Become a Patron for details. All right, back to the show. Well, okay, so we talked about Ethelfled and Ethelred um, and their their long reign. I mean, maybe we kind of covered that in Mercia. Um, but after Ethelred died, she kind of took over for him, didn't she? She did. She did. And in fact, um, there's quite a lot of evidence that she was ruling um, for some years before he died. It's very interesting that early on, there's a kind of uh, a triumvirate of Alfred, his eldest son, Edward, and Ethelred working together, um, fighting the Vikings. And Ethelred is named in the sources as being there at crucial points. Um, One 10th century chronicler actually talks about Ethelred coming to Edward's aid at one point. And then all of a sudden, round about 902 to 904, he just disappears. He's last spotted in a charter dated for round about 904. In 902, it all kind of went wrong. Edward is king of, of, of Wessex by this time. Alfred died in 899. And one of the first things that Edward had to do was fight off um, a rebellion by his own cousin. So his claim to the throne wasn't as secure as he might have wished it. But the fighting that goes on around this time, there's no mention of Ethelred by name. And it's just like he, he completely disappears there are a few key battles where you'd have expected him to be leading the, the Mercian forces, and he isn't. And we do have a source which is not entirely reliable, but it is full of detail. It's, it's an Irish fragmentary source that talks about King Eth- they call him King Ethelred, being diseased and on the point of death. So if we take these two things together, this Irish source that claims that he was ill and the fact that he kind of disappears from the record, it's safe to assume that from around about 902 onwards, he was somehow incapacitated. I'm I'm thinking perhaps he might have had a stroke, which didn't kill him, but maybe left him unable to rule. And it does look like Athelflaed was, was ruling in his stead even before his death in 911. So... You know, that's rather interesting. What's also interesting is that when Ethelred died, Edward did not sweep in and take over Mercia. He was seemingly quite happy to to let his sister rule there. I think the two of them were very close and she obviously had some remarkable qualities because it's it's not usual. It's not completely unprecedented, but it's not usual for a woman to be leading um, a country or a kingdom at that time. So it'd be safe to say she was a successful female ruler. Oh, I think so. I think so. There's um, the curious part of the the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which is basically where we get almost all of our information about her from. Uh, And it's a a thing, it's it's known as the Mercian Register, and it's been included in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, and it's clearly written by the Mercians. And it's not very long. It covers the years 902 to 918, and I actually did type it out um, at one point, and it, you can fit it all on a, an A4 sheet of paper. So there's, there's really not a lot of detail, but it does talk about her reign and it, it talks about her having the right to rule and the authority to rule. 
it doesn't talk about her fighting, but it does talk about the the campaign against the Vikings, the towns that she managed to wrest back from Viking control. And it's a fascinating document. The the thinking is that it might have been part of a, a longer document, but that's lost to us now. But, um, yeah, clearly she was very successful and clearly the Mercians had no problem with being led by a woman and neither did her brother. He, you know, say he, it's possible that he was being spread too thinly. Um, he'd had to put down a rebellion from his own cousin. You know, there were lots and lots of Viking incursions. So he may literally have just been too busy and too thinly stretched to also take direct control of Mercia. But, again... He let her, he didn't try to put somebody else in her place, which I, I think speaks volumes for not only their relationship, but her strength of character and her personal qualities. We often see her as like a, a warrior queen. Is that a fair statement? Did she act, Was she actually involved in any battles? Well, there is, again, no direct evidence that she was. I don't think so, because firstly, the Mercian Register doesn't say it. We do have other sources which place her at battles, leading the troops. Um, but again, the main one is the the Irish Annal that I mentioned before, which is more, more written like a, a saga rather than a chronicle. So we have to be a little bit careful with that. Did she actually fight? Normally with this period, we, we look around for comparisons, you know, other examples. And we can say, well, we, we don't know that this person did that, but we do know that this was the, the habit, this was the custom. With Athelflaed, we can't say because with a few notable but very brief exceptions, we don't know of any other women who were in her situation. There was a, a woman called Athelborough who um, apparently burnt a town to the ground, but that is literally all we know about that. If she fought, I'm wondering, where did she learn to do that? We know that the royal children at Alfred's court had an education, but there's there's certainly no mention of the daughters being taught, um, you know, how to wield a sword. Maybe her husband taught her to fight. That's a possibility. My guess would be that she was a, a figurehead. The, the Mercian Register talks about her sending an army into Wales it talks about her obtaining Derby, um, which was one of the, the key strategic towns that they, they managed to get back from the Vikings. But it doesn't actually say that she was there at the front fighting. Um, I'm not sure she would have been, but we can't say either way. We, we have no evidence one way or the other, unfortunately. Do we know when this idea of her being a warrior queen, so to speak, started? It's really interesting, actually, because um, I mean, I've recently written a, a book about um, women of power in Anglo-Saxon England, and what struck me was that the the contemporary chronicles, if they say anything at all about the women, they they tend to be very matter of fact. You know, like Queen Ethelborough, they just say, "Oh, she burnt a town to the ground." Okay, move on. That you don't need any more detail. <laughs> what we do find is that the Slightly later, the Anglo-Norman chroniclers um, give lots more detail and a lot of it is quite derogatory. So we get lots of accusations of witchcraft and murder and, uh, you know, poison and, and this kind of thing. But they seem to love Athelflaed. Um, and Henry of Huntingdon um, actually wrote a poem comparing her to Caesar. 
you know, um, heroic, he called her. So I think some of it started then. There was a huge resurgence of interest in the Anglo-Saxon period during the Victorian era, which I think might also have, have had something to do with with this idea of her being, um, you know, the, the warrior queen. Mm, that sounds about right with the Victorians. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I, I think it is unusual in that, as I say, most of the 12th century chroniclers weren't that fond of the Anglo-Saxon women, particularly a lot of the religious women, in, uh, interestingly. But Henry of Huntingdon absolutely fell in love with Athelflaed and, and wrote a poem about her, which... Yeah, it's um, that may have been when it started. That's interesting. Now, she died. She wasn't even 50 yet, was she? I mean, if we have a rough idea of when she was born. Yeah, I certainly, maybe 48, 49. What we don't know really is whether that was a, an especially old age. There's lots of examples of, of people living that long, um, going way back into Mercian history. Uh, Pender, who was famously the last pagan king of Mercia, if we can work his dates out properly, he was um, in his 50s and, and still fighting. So it's not unheard of. What we don't know um, is... Things like um, puberty and menopause, we, we don't know whether these ages have changed uh, significantly over the years. But I think it's fair to say after the life she led, by the time she was getting towards her 50s, I think she'd have been very tired. She spent a lot of her time, if if not physically fighting, then, you know, the, the whole um, campaign of, of building towns, these fortified towns known as boroughs, which was very important in, in her joint campaign with her brother. So I think she lived to a good age. What we've got to bear in mind is that uh, in the Anglo-Saxon period, they suffered periods of extreme drought, of famine. But of course, that would have affected the ordinary people much more than the nobility. The nobility and the religious people had the best diets. So I, whether 50 is a good age or not, I don't know. There are certainly examples of women of her class living to even older. So it's, it's probably not that unusual. Do we have any idea of what her cause of death was? No, we don't. Um, and she does seem to have been um, fully active up to the point where she died. Uh, she died in Tamworth, um, which was another town that she'd reclaimed from the Vikings. At that point, various sources tell us, um, again, we have to look mainly to this Irish source, that she was also campaigning separately from her brother against the Viking Norse and that she was involved in uh, a battle at Corbridge um, up in, well, I suppose it's now Northumberland, quite a long way away. If we put all the sources together, she would have been travelling hundreds and hundreds of miles um, during her final few months. The people of York had come to her in the year that she died, asking for her help against the Vikings in York. So it sounds like a woman in her absolute prime the campaign is very, very successful, and then suddenly she dies. I have heard a theory that she might have been murdered mm. because she needed to be got out of the way. I don't give it much credence. There's certainly no suggestion, and I think the Mercian Register, which is clearly written in Mercia by Mercians in support of her, I think they possibly would have would have mentioned if if there was any suspicion of foul play. So 
I don't know. It's it's. But she clearly didn't have a long lingering illness. She was very very active up until the point that she died. But um, what I have noticed is that they very rarely do we get told what people die of. They they don't seem to even link up terribly much the fact that people die shortly after being in battle. You know, and we we, we assume that they might have died of battle wounds, but it's not often mentioned unless somebody is assassinated. So, um, yeah, it's it's not information that we get given a lot of, unfortunately. It's fascinating. I've never heard the theory that she may have been murdered and to have somebody take her place. Who would they have thought to take her place? Because she had a daughter, did she not? She did have a daughter. Um, again, <laughs> we don't know when Elfwyn was born. Um, she was with her mother, interestingly, um, in 915, so only three years before her mother died. We have her name. She witnessed a charter, which was issued at a place called Weirdborough. We we don't know where that place is, but it was another town that Athelflaed was uh, was building, a, a fortified town, a fortified borough. And her daughter, Alfwyn, was clearly there with her. So the likelihood is she was probably not a tiny child because I don't think Athelflaed would have taken a tiny child on campaign with her. Um, possibly she was a teenager by then. I suspect that Alfwyn would have been born certainly before, say, 902, when we can be sure that her father was fairly ill. So she was possibly a teenager, possibly being groomed to learn how to take over the reins. But then we don't know that Athelflaed thought that she'd be dead within three years, there is a possibility that um, Athelstan, her nephew, who eventually did become King of England, was also fighting on campaign with her. But there's no suggestion that Athelflaed ever considered him her heir. And the Mercians were quite happy for Alfwyn to take over from her mother. Um, but Edward of Wessex had other ideas, unfortunately. So this murder theory, I mean, it's it's not something that's supported by any of the contemporary or even later sources. I think this is a, a modern idea that she might have been murdered, but by whom? I don't know. The West Saxons, the Vikings, um, plenty of people would have uh, perhaps thought they might benefit from her death. But then again, I think she would have been very closely guarded as well. So it's it's not a theory I subscribe to anyway. It's an interesting theory, and uh, I think a lot of people are going to be a lot more interested in learning about her now that they know that little possible tidbit. But the, mm. the one thing that I'm very intrigued by is that Ethelflaed seems to have been a very successful female ruler. But in the 12th century, we had Empress Matilda, who, mm. for some reason the men around her did not want her to be queen. Why? What do you think changed in the culture of the country between that time? In a word, 1066. <laughs> I think a lot of, um, I, I think a huge line actually is drawn through history at that point because um, although the Normans were technically descended from the Vikings, it, it seems that by that stage they, if anything, were slightly more... Um, what's the word, maybe Frenchified, um, seem to have lost touch a little bit with the, with their Viking origins. Um, their customs, their um, societal expectations, their culture was very, very different. They spoke a different language. And I said at the beginning that um, we don't know exactly the nature of the settlement of the, the Angles and the Saxons. We do know the nature of the Norman conquest, 
which was that the essentially the whole top tier of of English society was removed, and um, I think there was a different attitude to women. I I I know a lot about the Anglo-Saxon attitude to women. I know less about the Norman attitude, but it seems to me that a lot of the freedoms that the Anglo-Saxon women had were not necessarily afforded to the Norman women. And and I think attitudes changed. And certainly by by the time of um, Empress Matilda, I believe she liked to, to be called, again, 12th century attitudes were still, I mean, history is still being written by the churchmen. You know, it was the the, the, the monks who were the scribes and attitudes were changing towards women i think there was more emphasis on on the idea of you know women being you know the original sinners and um i i think the norman culture generally was perhaps less tolerant of powerful women that that would be my take on it i find it interesting that matilda's father named her as his heir instead of stephen And then we move forward to Henry VIII, who was so desperate to have a male heir. I just see the country regressing so much over that time. Yes. I mean, poor Matilda. I mean, she she fought and fought and fought and and ultimately got nowhere. Um, So, yes, it's really interesting. And I think... I mean, possibly that was, you know, the, it was certainly the last attempt, wasn't it, um, before the Tudors for for a woman to rule. Uh, it may be that by then, I think by then, England was probably so entrenched with the idea that men do the ruling. Um, so poor Henry, yes, well, so poor Henry. I have no sympathy for him at all, I'm afraid. <laughs> but um, yeah, de- desperate for a male heir because that that was the important thing. You know, you, you had to carry on your line through through the, the the males. What do you think was Ethelfled's greatest contribution to history? I mean, for me, she's she's someone that gets us talking about the Anglo-Saxons, um, which is a great thing. Uh, she was instrumental in the fight to push back the Viking advance. I mean, there's there's no doubt about that. Um, you know, you've got a brother and sister working in accord, and the borough building campaign was was actually not at all random. It was very strategic. She was building boroughs which allowed Edward's free time to to go off fight the Vikings in one area, and then he would build them that allowed her troops to go off and fight in another area. We know from this and from the Mercian Register that there was a point in history where people had no problem, no issue whatsoever with a woman being in charge. And I think that's that's great. It hasn't happened very often, but at least we know it did happen. We shouldn't get hung up on her title. Um, she wasn't a queen, but then the the name, the word queen is a bit problematic those times because it, the Anglo-Saxons didn't, use it in the same way that that we consider it she was the lady of the mercians and to be the lady is is quite a title the other great thing i think which is again it didn't last it wasn't successful but she was a woman ruler who was succeeded by a woman ruler and that didn't happen again until we get to the tudors and it's it's often overlooked, partly because um, shortly after Athelflaed died, her daughter did succeed her. She was, you know, sort of elected leader by the Mercians, and Edward of Wessex this time decided that he would 
take Wessex, uh, take Mercia under his direct control. We don't know what happened to Alfwyn. The likelihood is that she ended up in a nunnery somewhere. And um, I suspect that part of the reason was that Edward was more secure in his own kingdom. They pushed back the Vikings. He also had adult sons by this stage, which he didn't when um, Ethelred of Mercia died. So I think all of those factors combined for Edward to say, leave well alone, I'll leave my sister there. But I think the fact that he didn't allow her daughter to carry on ruling speaks to me absolute volumes about Athelflaed's personal qualities. And whether she actually wielded a sword or whether she didn't, if we piece the information together, what we get is a picture of this incredibly strong incredibly capable woman who was clearly loved, clearly supported by all the men and family around her. Um, And I think she's just a a shining example, really, of of what was achieved in such turbulent times. And I think that's that's a very important message to get across. And, And the fact that, you know, it wasn't all men doing the fighting and doing the ruling so I think that's probably her her contribution. The fact that we talk about her so much, even though we really know so little about her. Some something has stuck, something strikes a chord. There's there's definitely something resonating there. Maybe a little women's empowerment. I think so. I think so. Yeah. And and I love the idea. I mean, the Mercian Register was very, very um offended and outraged by Alfwyn's um, removal, and it talks about her being deprived of all authority. So clearly at this time, and we have to assume that this Mercian Register was also written by monks. At this period, they had no problem with women ruling. They were outraged that this woman had been, you know, deprived of her authority. So, yeah, yeah, definitely a, a small moment of girl power. So if you'd love to know more about Ethelfled and other women of power in Anglo-Saxon England, please do check out Annie's books. I will have links in the show notes on TudorsDynastyPodcast.com. Annie, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you for letting me talk and waffle on about my favorite subject. It's been a joy. Thank you. And that concludes this episode of the podcast. A special thank you to our newest patrons, Leslie P., Samantha T., and Jenna C. Up next on Ask the Expert, the dissolution of the monasteries. We'll answer all those burning questions you've had about the events and the people involved in the destruction of those gorgeous buildings. Thank you so much for listening. And Jack, put on your pants. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty. 